Hi there, and thanks for joining us on this episode. Two guests at different ends of their careers. We have a 20-year-old who has convinced some of the country's biggest business leaders to speak at his executive summit. But first, one of Cork's most seasoned developers on property and why the current crisis may yet get worse. I'm Jonathan Healy, and this is Red Business. Red Business, Cork's exclusive business podcast. Michael O'Flynn of O'Flynn Group, how are you? I'm good, Jonathan, thank you. Nice to have you in studio. Um, where is O'Flynn Group at right now? I mean, you have, you, are, you have the title as one of Cork's most successful ever developers. What do you do now? What occupies your days? Well, we're very much doing what we always did. Probably not at the scale that we were at in 2006 and 2007, which is a good thing. But I'm 40 years, believe it or not, um, in business since last year. Um, we've always been involved in, in housing housing development and commercial development in Cork. Since the mid-80s, we got involved in London and the UK. And we're still doing all what we did over the last 40 years, but slightly differently now. And, um, How so? What are you doing differently? Unfortunately, we're, we have a lot more capacity than we have um, capable demand out there. And I, I think people don't understand the difference between the demand, which everyone at this stage is in agreement is somewhere between 35 and 40,000 units. But the capable demand, Jonathan, is probably only what's happening. Like, we are selling. We have probably, between Cork and Dublin, we have probably 11 or 12 active sites in housing spread across all the all sectors of the housing market. But what we're selling compared to what we'd like to sell or what we're building compared to what we want to build is a lot less than, than we're capable of. Now, when you look into that closely, perhaps people are confusing demand with capable demand. And what I mean by that is what people can afford. I mean, this, the macroprudential rules of the central bank are, in my opinion, one of the really frustrating uh, factors around my business at the moment. Because, I mean, let's be clear, lots of people got it wrong in the past, including the central bank, including the developers, including the banks. And uh, I stand over our um, track record and how we did our business. But we all got um, thrown into NAMA because there was no other word to describe it at this stage. And we all know how that evolved for a number of people. Very few got through it. And those who got through it um, and out the other end, like ourselves, we find ourselves back in a situation that we have a housing market that's pretty much dysfunctional at this moment in did, time. Did it overcorrect? Oh, there's no question. I mean, the central bank, we all thought somebody somewhere was keeping an eye on the macro issues of the economy in, in the mid-2000s. Unfortunately... Nobody was watching. There was nobody in an ivory tower keeping an eye on the world. And, you know, I suppose the origin of all of this was the euro. And we were able to go to Europe, borrow overnight. We were lending long and borrowing short. And, of course, once the world crisis hit, Ireland was in a very poor place banking-wise. None of us knew that. Now we have a central bank who unfortunately got it very wrong back then. Lots of people got it wrong. I'm just not picking those out. But now, to my dismay, they're actually saying to the world, stay renting. 
we won't allow you to buy a house. And I would put it as strong as that because the factor, the multiplier of the salary at three and a half compared to other countries at four and a half means that some people in today's, with today's salaries have no hope of buying a house. And and as a developer, you want to sell houses, you want to build houses. Are you saying that there are people out there who you could easily build houses for who are effectively being priced out of it, not by you, but by the central bank? Yeah, I I think that's exactly what I'm saying. And I'm talking about, like, we we sell houses now to children of those people who sold houses 35 years ago, 40 years ago. And, like, the standard couple back then, Jonathan, could actually buy a house. Your standard couple today, and I use the expression garden nurse, type buyer really are struggling to buy a house and we have done nothing about it it's it's partly to do with the central bank but that's a big part now nobody wants to fail i mean if the housing market is a risk there are insurance products and other ways of dealing with it but those couples is most unfair to punish those people who never who cause no problem ever because they're the, they were the best mortgage payers in the world we went mad in this country with mortgages. We gave over 100% mortgages. We did all kinds of stupid things. And now we're overcorrecting to the extent that your standard couple actually are priced out of the market. And it's part of that has to do with taxes. VAT, at, I keep talking about VAT at 13.5%. When we were building houses first, VAT is 3%. Why you have to charge a young couple? And people think it's the builder pays the VAT. I'm tired of it. It's the consumer pays for everything. Mm. We're just the middle person, okay? But a lot of people will say, and there's those listening right now, good look, typical developer. He's going to say, cut the VAT, it's the central bank's fault. But look, Michael O'Flynn, as every developer, is going to be in there to make a profit. Maybe if you reduced your profit margins more, it might solve some of the problems that you're talking about. It's not necessarily all about the bank. Jonathan, that's that's a fair question, and I'm glad you ask it, because I prefer to get those questions than not. The blunt reality is we can't build houses or fund houses unless we make 15% margin. And that's a minimum margin that's necessary to take some of the risk that we're taking for a bank to fund us. That's it. When we had super profits in the past, which we did, it all went back into the land. Land kept getting more and more expensive. And to me, besides the central bank, besides the VAT and taxes, the other big issue is um, land. Look, I am tired of people saying we have enough zone land in this country. We don't have enough zone land. That's available. Lots of zone land in the wrong place. Exactly. That's available in the right places. And that's capable of having infrastructure. And like, I've heard even people in your business and experts from the department saying we have enough zone land. Listen, I'm in the marketplace. I can tell you we don't have enough zone land. And unfortunately, we had market players the last few years who overpaid for land. Now, every, every time someone, someone overpays for land, it's off the market as regards because you can't build on something that you overpay for. So we have a situation, we have a lot of land that's not capable of being built upon. And so the market is overpaying. And in a funny kind of way, they're being accused of hoarding, but nobody can build unless it's viable. So that's why I would say the housing market at the moment, it, despite what political comments are put on it is quite dysfunctional and and it's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast with you it really concerns me that people just don't get it but, but people will say look the market has been dysfunctional before it couldn't have been any more dysfunctional as it was in 2007 are you saying now it's as dysfunctional if not a bit worse listen I'm saying at this moment in time it's a, dis- it's a different dysfunctional but it's still dysfunctional 
In 2012, I take no pleasure in telling you that I predicted we were heading for a housing crisis. People were li- literally laughing at me when I said it at that time. We weren't forward planning. We're not doing the simple thing. What housing do we need? Where do we need it? What can people afford? How does the builder's model work? And it really, really concerns me that people are hung up on developers' profit. I said recently in an interview, and I'm saying it now again, go back to the days of certificates of reasonable value. What they were 25 years ago, we had to go to the department, open our books and say, here's our cost base, here's our proposed price. We couldn't sell that house, or you couldn't get a mortgage for that house, unless you had what was known as a CRV, a Certificate of Reasonable Value. And I have no problem if you want to go back to that. Just to get away from your question a few moments ago, this is a developer, he wants more profit, he wants, he wants more money. We don't. And the more we pay for land, the more profit we make, the more we pay for land. I'm in the business of developing, and that's where I get my profit from. We, have, we had too many people get into the business who were never in the business. We had too much financial engineering. And quite frankly, we have very poor speculation in the last couple of years, which people find it hard to believe in terms of people overpaying, and they now have to hold on to that land. And the vacant land tax is a help, and I wouldn't be against the principle of it, but the vacant land tax alone, you cannot force somebody to do something that's not viable. So you're, you're saying it's not viable to build houses. Whose fault is that? I mean, you, you've mentioned the central bank, but in the middle of all of this, you have the biggest agitator in this sector, which is government. A- and government, while not building houses anymore, is tasked with creating the correct environment in which houses can be built. Are they failing to do that job? The answer is yes. Like, we have to call it as it is. The, the simple fact of the matter is, we don't... There's too much... First of all, the government and central bank are two separate entities. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how that's going to change. Maybe with Philip Lane heading for Europe, there might be a different take taken in it. And interestingly enough, I speak to a lot of property economists, and I get the impression in recent times that they're beginning to accept the central bank issue is is one of the issues that um, is stopping people buying houses. So should, should Owen Murphy, in that role as government oversight. Should he turn to the central bank, even though they're an independent body, and, and say, do something about this? Well, well, see, the politicians are scared to open their mouth. I mean, we need leadership. We need gov- governing. We need government to do what government is meant to do. And, like, the reality of the situation is we have too many, too many factors are stopping the supply of housing at prices people can afford. We, we, we're not going to get into salary increases. We're not going to get into any other way of dealing with it except if anything, bring down the prices, but at least control the prices at a level that people can afford. Because you must take away the financial speculation out of the business. You must, people like me, we build, we buy, we build and we sell. You know, you have to have people doing that. And I have to say that I'm, like the government now, the most recent initiative, and you might have seen an interview last Sunday with John Moran, the chairman of the Land Development Agency. No, that really worries me. When I I see a a new chairman of an agency talking about, let's take away the developer's profit, let's get builders in to build. Like, we all see the problems recently with with procurement of public contracts. So what we're now saying is that the state will become a developer for a fraction of the housing that's needed by the state for for us to keep pace. Like, you have to understand here, Jonathan. And the state becomes long-term renters. Yeah, and that, like, you know... People fought hard for freedom in this country and we got away from the landlord system of the past. 
And all of a sudden, every time you pick up the paper now, people are, are journalists and others are, are, are talking how great it is that we have all these private rental sector blocks of apartments and everything. But every time a block of apartments is sold wholesale to a firm, to an outside, you know, and let's be clear, we all have to do what the market tells us is the best result. You're actually taking away units from ordinary couples or starter homes who want to get on the ladder. And that that actually makes it more difficult. So to go back to your question a few moments ago, I think the government, in whatever um, capacity they can, need to sit down with the central bank in face to the fact Maybe people like Michael Loughlin is right. Maybe there is a problem but here. But they'll never agree with you, Michael. No, no politician is going to agree with a developer ever again because that is seen as the unholy grouping that got the country into difficulty in well, 2007, 2008. Well, I can tell you, I was in the government in the mid-2000s telling them we were pricing ourselves out of business. Let's not get into uh, um, identifying names. We were in a situation at that point when we were, I knew that we were pricing ourselves out of business. And as I told you a few moments ago, the more we get for, for land, or the more we get in profits, the more we pay for land. Because that's where, the, that's where the, the super profits went. It always went to the land. And I'm saying, uh, I've suggested strategic land reserves. In other words, you look at all the pressure areas in this country where you don't have enough land at affordable prices. You actually zone more land. You, you don't zone more land. You designate land as reserve zoning. And if that's brought forward from Warp under the fast track planning system, it's deemed to be zoned if the developer and the landowner are bringing forward a proposal mm-hmm. that meets certain criteria but, and that allows people to buy affordable homes. Well, what, now, what I ask you, why is the downside in that? Yeah. No, I've put this into government over a year ago and I, it still hasn't happened. So, well, Every time somebody tries to develop any type of property in this country, there are going to be objections, fast track or not, whereby objections go in and then TDs get involved because they have to support the objections because they have to support the voters. What do you make of that policy of TDs, including very high profile TDs in government, Uh, saying, I don't want those houses built there? You know what? Uh, Politicians sometimes try to be all things to all people uh, and to get themselves into all kinds of difficulties with that. uh, I think that... We need more leadership from politicians. We, we need them to stay out of, of that objecting on behalf of local residents. I, the the fast-track planning process, you can't appeal anymore, but you can make your, your points known. And if the, if the board or the local authority see merit in that, they will be dealt with. I, I, I think politicians should stay out of appeals and objecting because of pressure from residents. I would go so far as to say that they should be prohibited from doing so. Because they have a they have a a dual mandate of serving the people, but also coming up with the legislation and the policies that enable an economy to work. This economy is not going to continue to go to do well because of the lack of housing. Foreign direct you... investment is impacted. Mm. It's impacted here in Cork. It's impact. It's, it's impacted in other parts of the country, and I would say that the regions are going to be more affected than the Greater Dublin area. And what I mean by that is, in the Greater Dublin area, people can go out and out and out and still commute. We, we don't have the commuting options from county towns because wherever we're building around Cork, and we are doing some development, you know, we'll probably build 200 and something houses this year. We could do a lot more. There's no question of us building in those outlying areas because they they just won't work. It's not viable. I mean, we have to have viable development 
and we have to have affordable development. So do you think all those FDI jobs that are being lauded, maybe post-Brexit, Ireland and Cork or Galway or Limerick being celebrated as an option for these companies to move to, do you think that's going to be impacted unless we get a handle on this? and get Jonathan, I can tell you firsthand this morning that we are losing FDI jobs in Cork at this moment in time because people who come in, they do their own assessments. They might meet the politicians and the ministers the idea do a wonderful job. I, I think they've served this country to an extraordinary agency in how they operate. But when people do the assessment and they don't see the housing available at prices that their workforce can, can um, afford, they actually don't locate. Now, nobody wants to talk about it, but the sooner we face up to the fact that we are losing jobs, then we start dealing with the fact that this housing thing is a lot more complex than the politicians and the government want to admit. And I can understand that because an election looms all the time. Mm. Perhaps if Brexit wasn't here, we would have had that election. And if Brexit goes on hold or goes anywhere, that election is going to happen. So nobody wants to admit there's a problem here. But but I've spoken to both leading parties in government on many occasions. They just need to get over it and fix the housing scenario. Otherwise, it'll have much much bigger ramifications for this country. Do you have faith in either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael that they can get on top of this? Or do you think that this is going to become the new health, the well, new I, Angola? I, I just think that, unfortunately, I mean, I read that article last Sunday from John Morden, who, who's been tasked... Like, I think the concept of the Land Development Agency is a good one. I think it's, it's an enabler of development. That's what I understood it to be, and p- public lands being brought forward. But what's emerging now... Uh, and I do intend uh, talking directly to them, what's emerging now is a different uh, proposition altogether to what was floated initially. But perhaps what's emerging now is what was always meant. To answer your question directly, I, I don't think... I think Fianna Fáil are, are um, highly aware of the problem. I, they're not in government. I think the Fine Gael, uh, I think, are, are not dealing with the housing issue. And I don't understand why, because... I think they want to believe it's fixing itself. It's not fixing itself. And I think with the lack of a majority government, you can't really bring in policies that, that could be that could be unpopular. Mm. And why would it be unpopular? I mean, the developer community have become are still regarded as being somewhat toxic. Maybe that's a strong word. But, but you know what? People need to get over themselves because if you are going to f- fix the housing crisis, you'll only fix it by having developers developing. Are you a necessary evil? We are, <laughs> put put like that, uh, um, the answer is yes. I don't like your description, mind you. <laughs> but you will not get any scale of development in this country or this region here where we're sitting today unless you have private development. And when I read articles for, for government, a new government agency being being announced which still hasn't gone through legislation, it absolutely scares me because you know what that's going to do? It's going to frighten people investing with us, lending to us. So we're, what we're now doing is we're taking a problem and we're actually making it a bigger problem. Well, we do that very well in this country. Um, one of the things, Michael, that when I think of you, uh, that stands out is I remember when the plans were unveiled for the Elysium. Uh, which is the biggest building in Cork uh, and was, uh, for a time, the biggest building in the entire country. and uh, The tallest, I think. The tallest, yeah, yeah, the tallest. <laughs> I, I remember uh, going, good God, that's, that's, that's real Celtic Tiger stuff. Uh, and 
now every time I drive past it because for a long time you'd drive up the link road and you'd look up and you'd see lights in some of the rooms and not the others now there's lights in every room um, d- does that show and does that vindicate your vision uh, Jonathan I've always said our, our timing was terrible but from from grass to finish units uh, or in that case the brownfield site you're probably talking about between two and two and a half years so w- when I pressed the button on that I had no idea that the world crisis in financial was coming. Well, you wouldn't have pressed the button that you no. own. And I had no idea that the Irish banks were in such a precarious position in terms of um, ratios and borrowing and all that. Should I have t- known that? Possibly. But it's one thing that continues to annoy me, that whilst I seem to be very aware of all my suppliers, I, I had no awareness um, of the precarious position of what is really our main raw material, which is money. I always said, this will stand the test of time. We researched carefully what we were going to build. I thought Cork was deserving of a really good apartment building. I can tell you, I had 500 or more names at one point. I should have probably forward sold, which is something we didn't do. It's something we would do now, something mm. we should have done, something that was always done in the UK, because money was freely available, and I thought it was a very good concept. I think... I suppose the the worst thing about that building was we would have let that building if we were allowed to finish it out by NAMA. When I say finish it out, I mean fit it out for letting. But in their wisdom, they wouldn't allow us. So it stood there for all those years, almost like um, a stick over over us. Mm. And it, it should have been fitted and let. I remember doing a scheme in Clapham back in 1990. And I can tell you the market switched over there overnight. If we had the scheme finished, it was about, I think it was 36 apartments. And I remember meeting the bank, as you would in those days, and as we would here, had our loans been left in the banks. I mean, I still have a big issue with how that was dealt with. But meeting the bank and say, look, the market seems to be gone. We'll just rent them for a number of years. Absolutely no issue. Arranged with the bank, fitted out the units. I hadn't the last unit fitted out and rented when they started selling. And I sold them one by one. It was no longer an empty building. Mm. It was no longer a building that people didn't know if they were rented or people didn't know if they were sold. I had them all sold within 12 months of renting them all out. The point I'm coming to is we didn't do that in the leasing. We, you know, NAM had their own agenda. I suppose they saw it as something. Having tenants in the building would be less value. But there was no strategic long-term um, vision because they had bonds to pay. They had a different agenda. They were crisis mode, constant crisis C- mode. Constant crisis mode. It was a liquidation agency more than a development one, even though it, it was described as asset management. And to be honest with you, it's very hard to take now that the the housing programme they have and they, they expand it into the land development agency, all coming from the same pool of, of NAMA. And reading that article... I think um, there's a suggestion now that um, we'll nationalise development and, my goodness, you know, if if we think this is a crisis in housing, if they get on that road, Jonathan, <laughs> it's going to be a much bigger crisis and please remember me saying this, OK? <laughs> it's on the record. Um, just the last question to you, Michael. Many people over the years would have viewed you as somebody with a brass neck, somebody who stuck to it, um, no matter how pressing the challenge from whatever quarter it was coming from, Michael O'Flynn stuck to what he did and stood over his decisions. 
Is that a fair characterization well, from I, inside your head? I, I, I don't like the expression brass neck. It's, that's not a positive expression at all. I am probably very focused. I am definitely very determined. And if I believe in something, I, I won't give up. One of the things we'll be speaking in just a minute to Barry O'Sullivan, who's running something called the Executive Summit, which you're attending as well. Very interesting guy. We'll have a chat with him in a minute, but uh, you're looking forward to attending that up in well, Glantar. I am because he's from West Cork. He found his way to me. He 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 kept at it and um, <laughs> with my secretary and others. And um, look, you know what? I, I, I spoke to him and I, I met him in my office quickly one day for a coffee. And I said, you know, fair juice here. Here's a young fella who's has having a go. And he's, he's, I think he's only second year in college. That's it. I will talk, and we'll... he had a maturity beyond his years. And I said, Barry, if you get others, I'll be part of it. And good luck to you. And you know what I, I loved about him? He wasn't looking for anything, only a bit of time. And if we can't give time to people who, who are trying in this world, we're, we're going nowhere. Michael O'Flynn, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And uh, best of luck in the future. It's been a pleasure, Jonathan. And good luck to you in everything you're doing also. Thank you. Red Business. All that's best about business in Cork. And with me now is the aforementioned Barry O'Sullivan, who is the brains behind the executive summit.ie. Barry, how are you? Good, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. Look, we heard what Michael said about you there a minute ago. You're you're 20. Yeah, 20 years old. And um, in college. Yeah, I'm, I'm in second year in ECC. And you, uh, to help fund all of your activities, uh, drive around and deliver people's dinners <laughs> right now, yeah? At the moment, yeah. 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 So <laughs> how did you come up with the idea for the Executive Summit? Um, so initially I kind of saw it uh, as an opportunity. Uh, I saw there was an annual event which kind of brought uh, the insight and the views of, I would say, top chief executives uh, to the Irish business community. Uh, and I wanted to create an event which would, on an annual basis, um, Bring like I said, top chief executives and bring their insight and their views to Irish business leaders uh, in a half-day event. Okay, but this isn't the pool that you swim in. Uh, how how much do you know about the events and conferencing um, well, sector? I mean, yeah, so it's, it's relatively new to me in that I've, I haven't run previous events, um, but I didn't really see that as a, a, a an obstacle or anything. Um, I just tried to kind of commit myself as best I can to properly executing executive summit 2019. Um, but you're right, it wasn't something I've done before or anything. So. Now, I mean, I go back to my own time in college when I was 20. I'd say the most excitement I would have had would have been going to the college bar. <laughs> I, I, not to mention trying to organise an event which That'd you be draw. Quite too, yeah. yeah, well, I'm sure you do that as well. Yeah. But how did you get to invite those key speakers, the six that you have, who are in a pretty impressive lineup? Tell us who else you have other than Michael. Yeah, so we've got Michael O'Flynn. Um, we've also got David McCourt, who's the chief executive of Granite McCourt Capital. Uh, David's had a really kind of long and brilliant career. Um, he sold his first company for £14 billion, CCN. Um, he's served on the board of Berkshire Hathaway. He's a really kind of exceptional executive. Uh, we've also got um, Daryl Byrne, uh, chief, chief executive of the uh, of Euronext Dublin, uh, formerly the Irish Stock Exchange. Uh, Daryl's going to make a keynote presentation. We've got um, John O'Connor, the chief executive of the housing agency. We've got Michael Dawson, chief executive of Leinster Rugby. Like you said, Michael O'Flynn of O'Flynn Group. Uh, and we've also got Pat McCann of the Lad Hotel Group PLC. So I mean, th- these are heavy hitters. These are the who's who of senior Irish management. Yeah. How did 20-year-old Barry convince them to take part in this event? Yeah, well, um, generally there's kind of like a process and it's, it's, it's kind of as simple as just um, I, I get in touch with their PA if I can. So I ring the office, ask for their PA or their executive assistant, um, tell them what I'm doing. And, and and kind of explain why I'd like the the executive in question to speak at the event. Uh, they then it's generally kind of okay. Send on your, send on your email and send on the details, and we get back to you. Um, so there's been lots of no's, of course. But um, for for in, in David McCord's case, um, 
David called me back and said he'd be interested in in, in speaking to Executive Summit. Um, and and once once I had David kind of committed, it was far easier to get other speakers. So generally, trying this in my case anyway, I definitely tried to get one uh, big name like like David, a really competent speaker and executive. Um, and then the rest follow on from that. So. Yeah, but I'd imagine a lot of people ring David McCourt to do things the whole time. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he's a busy man. He doesn't yeah. have time to necessarily yeah. do all of this. I mean, uh, what magical charm did you wield? Did you know him? Uh, no, no, I don't, didn't know him at all. So um, you cold called? Yeah, essentially, yeah. Well, he cold emailed, but yeah, essentially, yeah. Okay. And and he he, he was in straight away? Um, yeah, pretty much. Um, there was one or two things he had to kind of uh, jig around with dates and stuff, but he was actually very accommodating. Um, for someone as busy as he is, which was actually very cool. Um, but yeah, he he, he was um, quite interested in the event, and he's quite interested in talking about his career at the event. Um, and so he thought it made sense, and he'd like to speak at it. So, so now that you have the event planned and you have your your speakers, I know you're looking for more speakers, of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, what do you hope is going to come out of this? Is this going to be an annual event? Is that um, the plan? Well, that, that would certainly be the aim. Um, I think there's good potential with, with the event in that some of the benefits that we have from our different sections and our different presentations um, can be applied to positions across the sea level. So, yes, chief executive, you know, primarily in year one, it's kind of for chief executive officers, managing directors, uh, and organisational leaders. Um, but as you go on, um, the, the benefits that we have from our different presentations, talks, and sections uh, can be kind of applied across the C suite uh, to a, to a range of um, positions. You know, chief financial officer, chief operating officer, uh, executive MBA students. Uh, chief technology officers and stuff like that. So the idea would be that to definitely um, have the event on an annual basis um, and maybe at some stage make it more of a continental event as opposed to a national one. Okay, so there's a bit of ambition there as well, but yeah, you want to get through the first one first. Yeah, yeah precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thought, yeah. what, what do your mates make of all of this? I mean, they're, they're all there <laughs> looking at you, organising this. Uh, you're appearing in the paper, you're appearing in podcasts and radio and all this kind of thing. Do they all go... Is it like... What's your man up to? Uh, not really. They're very, they're very helpful and supportive of a need... Um, they're just generally supportive as, as as good buddies, like. But uh, I mean, they don't think. Is that but what what I'm fascinated by, Barry? Is, is that this is a different type of entrepreneurial environment? Like you're in university, yeah. uh, it, it is now supporting entrepreneurs and yeah. encouraging entrepreneurs. So it, that's why it's not that unusual, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, like see, yeah, that's the thing. Like um, it, it isn't hugely unusual, and they've kind of. Um, there's other kind of smaller stuff I worked on the first year so they're kind of used to me coming out saying look I'm doing this and I've got this idea for this and this is what I'm going to try and do so maybe they're a bit used to this <laughs> interesting thing but yeah it, I mean at, at, at the start they were probably um, like kind of mildly shocked but a lot of them like a lot of my housemates and stuff aren't um, hugely into business so I mean they probably wouldn't know um, They wouldn't know who the line yeah, is yeah, and they, they don't know how they don't appreciate how yeah, senior the line yeah, is Yeah probably yeah so, so they were I mean they're Should not Should make them shocked. go I'd make them go <laughs> Sit through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, the, the event is on when and where? Yeah, so the event is on Friday, April 5th uh, in the Clontarf Castle Hotel just outside Dublin. Uh, it's a half-day event, so it's happening uh, from 8.40 to 1pm. Um, and there's there's three sections. So the first section is called um, public-private. So public-private is a look at a national issue, and it's got both public policy and commercial elements to its resolving. So that's going to be looking at the national housing problem in Ireland, uh, potential solutions, and that's going to be a panel discussion. But that's going to take the views of both people from kind of public sector organisations, but also on the commercial side, the likes of Michael O'Flynn, um, and, 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 and I mean, primarily people look at the, the national housing crisis as, yes, first and foremost, a social issue, and that's kind of what it is primarily, but there's there's huge commercial implications from um, the kind of undersupply of housing uh, and the housing problem we have in Ireland, namely, you know, it's going to affect... Um, Ireland's competitiveness significantly uh, down the line, um, both continentally and globally. Um, it's 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 it, I, a lot of people believe it's going to act as a 
a kind of hit or a deterrent to further FDI in, in the future. And it definitely um, is making kind of the expansion plans of a lot of, um, we'll say, Cork and Dublin city companies a lot more difficult than it probably should be. Um, the second section then is called executive leaders. Uh, and executive leaders is really, really interesting if you're, if, if you're someone who leads a company or leads an organisation. And what it is is it's six different keynote presentations from six different individuals um, or six different chief executives um, on the companies they run and how they run them um, and, and how they kind of execute one element of business particularly well. So I, I kind of like liken that to kind of TED Talks for CEOs because it's um, uh, six different chief executives breaking down in detail the work they're doing uh, and how others... It's really fast-paced. It's half a day, so you're, you're going to be... It's, it's bang, yeah. bang, bang. Yeah, exactly. It? And then the last section is uh, very kind of pressing... Um, it's focusing on a very pressing issue for a lot of business leaders in Ireland. So the last section is uh, looking at, it's called disruptive force, and basically disruptive force looks at uh, kind of the largest exogenous factor that's going to impact industry in Ireland in 2019. So that's going to be looking at Brexit and its impact on business activity in Ireland. Um, so what kind of, I would say, somewhat unique about um, that, that panel itself is that instead of it being kind of like a panel of, we'll say, a politician, a researcher, an academic, and um, maybe a thought leader. It's a, a panel of chief executives. What you're getting is kind of the executive and managing director view of how um, different business leaders see Brexit impacting their their company in, in their sector. Um, and I think that's really beneficial to... Yeah, and everybody should take something account. away from this. I just yeah. have to remind listeners right now that Barry is 20 years of age. He's a second year student. And, and he's speaking like somebody who's been organising and running events like this for years. The <laughs> website, Barry, give us the website address again. Yeah, so the website is www.executivesummit.ie Okay, and um, the details are there. How much are tickets? Yeah, 240. Which um, is reasonable for an event Yeah, like it's, it's relatively cheap for half days. Okay, so. well, Barry, all I can do is wish you the very best of luck. Here's hoping that the Clontarf Castle will be absolutely thronged <laughs> on the day. Uh, you know, stick with the studies as well, but yeah. uh, we look forward to hearing more about you and your career uh, over the next few years. But for now, Barry O'Sullivan from Executive Summit, thanks for joining. Thanks very much, Sheldon. Cheers. My thanks to both Barry O'Sullivan and to Michael O'Flynn. All episodes are now up on redextra.ie. Neve Hennessy was the producer, and we'll catch you on the next one. The only show in town for Cork Business, Red Business.